Okay, today is April the 5th, 2011. You might remember that Billy John and Lori's, um, what is it, spring uh, blue bonnet barbecue and bash <laughs> is going to be this Saturday. I think the whole church is invited, and if you haven't been, you ought to because it's have a lot of fun, a lot of food, a lot of good time also the same day as the Blue Bonnet Festival, which is about two blocks from this house, walking distance. Um, probably not. <laughs> There's so much to do, you don't need to be... Does he have all the chairs? You're, you're supposed to bring a, a chair and a dish and dish and chair and... If you want to fish, bring your fishing pole. They have hay rides for the kids and all types of things. Okay, um, let's prepare ourselves for the message this evening. You know our SOP, Standard Operating Procedure, so let's get to it. Silent prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and for your mighty word. We're so glad that we can depend upon it, that it never fails us, never changes, and it's always 100% on target. So we pray that you will help us to focus our full attention upon it tonight so that we can be good servants for you. So we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, probably you all are all ready to turn to Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're not going there. Uh, we're going to go, don't hurt, turn there yet, but we're going to go to the Gospel of John. And I'll tell you why. I was having a conversation with someone last night, and there was a particular scripture that came to light that I thought was very important that all of us be able to handle. And... I, don't, I haven't covered this before, and yet it is a scripture that can be very easily distorted and taken the wrong way. And so we're going to go over it tonight so that if this ever comes up, the scripture we're going to, that you can remember certain aspects of it so that you will be able to stand firm for the truth. The scripture is John chapter 5, verse 25, but we might as well start in, I don't know, 24 maybe. start with verse 21. I think that would be a good place to start. John chapter 5, verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. 
For not even the Father judges anyone, but has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. By the way, that past is a perfect tense. That means it covers, it carries a lot of weight. When you pass out of death into life, it's something that takes place in the past. We look back on that and the results go on and on right into the present. Verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is. I want you to underline that, an hour is coming. We're going to see that repeated in a moment. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. Now, you see, what you see here is the key to understanding this is the type of death mentioned in verse 25, and that is spiritual death. He says, An hour is coming when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. This was predicted. It was prophesied. And he says, then he goes on to say, And... And God and those who hear shall live. So he says, an hour is coming and now is. In other words, Jesus Christ was the Son of God giving the gospel. Prophecy was being fulfilled at that very moment. Verse 25, I mean, excuse me, 26. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Verse 28. Now verse 28 and 29 is our target scripture. Do not marvel at this. They're standing there with their mouth gaping open. Because they were shocked at what he was telling them. For an hour is coming. Underline that again. Remember he said that just a, bit, a little bit earlier. And... <clears throat> This doesn't necessarily mean a 60-minute period. In fact, the NIV, I believe it's the NIV, translates that there is a time coming. So, there is an hour. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear His voice. 29, and shall come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Okay, we're going to stop right there because there is so much in this verse. I think I'll put it on the board so I hope you can see this. I didn't 
uh, put it on PowerPoint, but I blew it up as big as I could. <clears throat> wonder what will happen if I put it on full screen, if it will get better or worse. Is that a little better? Okay. Um, Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice. Let me say right off the bat, when one of the problems that we have as believers, especially believers that have doctrine, believers who are grace-oriented and essentially have connected the dots with regards to spirituality and theology and the Christian way of life. And where we have problems are verses like this to where you have someone who comes along that is uninitiated in the Word of God. In other words, they don't know much about it, but they know where certain verses are, like this one. And if you read it and you just take this verse and you clip it out and you put it out separate from the Bible, and especially when you read it in the English, it sounds like it's substantiating the great masses in what they believe. Because the majority of people on this planet, and it doesn't matter what continent, what country, they have bought the lie. Satan's biggest lie is that there is going to be a judgment at the end of time. Or in some cases they think whenever you die this takes place. And in this judgment, everything that you've done on earth with regards to what you've done that is good compared to what you've done that is evil or bad is going to be sorted out. And those who have done more good than they have bad are going to be resurrected to life. They don't usually use that term, but that's what they would try to substantiate that false doctrine with with these two verses. And they say those who did evil, who did the bad, uh, you see deeds in both of these. It says deeds. They say if they did more bad deeds, well, then they just didn't make it. They weren't good enough. And so they're going to be resurrected and they're going to go to uh, the condemnation they're going to go to be resurrected to be judged that's essentially the biggest lie that satan has ever produced and most most people buy into it every religion buys into it now i'm talking to people who know doctrine so you know that christianity is not a religion in the same sense as all the others all those that are known as religions, because all of them have the same thing in common. They are working to either obtain the salvation or approbation of God. They're trying to get to that good place, whatever they conceive it to be, by their own works. And that's what they have in common, and that's what this verse seems to substantiate. And there's so many things that can be drawn out of this verse that is contrary to truth. And we need to be able to address that. The actual issue at hand that got me to talking about this to another person and drawing my attention to it was those who think that there's only one resurrection left. There's only one judgment 
and one resurrection left in God's scheme of things. And they go to this verse, and in verse 28 it says, For an hour is coming. And they would say, okay, what does that mean? There is an hour. There's going to be a, a literal, they, they could take it literally and say there is going to be a 60-minute period where all judgment is going to be taken care of. All those that have done good as opposed to all those who have done evil. And that's the only judgment left because it says there's, you just stick with this verse. Remember I said if you take this verse, you cut it out, put it over here, paste it over here by itself, it sounds like they've got an argument. Because that's what it appears on the surface that this verse could be substantiating. Now, because you know a lot more doctrine than most people, you know, well, wait a minute, that can't be. What about the judgment seat of Christ? What about the great white throne? Those are not the same thing. They don't take place at the same time. One of the mistakes to begin with in this is to think that when it says... Uh, for an hour is coming that you're lumping it all into the same time. Well, there is a, an hour coming. There is a time coming when there are going to be judgments and there is going to be a resurrection unto life and there is going to be a resurrection unto death. But it's not going to take place at the same time. Just because it says an hour is coming or a time is coming, there is a time for everything, every purpose under heaven. Remember in... Uh, that is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. And there is a time and a purpose for more than one resurrection. This is trying to lump it all into one, and yet we know that there's more than one. That's one of the issues, one of the problems with this verse, these two verses. But there's, there's much more. As we get into it, you'll see. So in verse 29, you can see it on the board. I've put in a few things in brackets. All who are in the tomb shall hear his voice. And that's a true statement. Hear his voice. We just got out of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Well, we're not out of it, but we're getting close. We just finished 1 Corinthians I mean, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 4, and we just finished 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, or getting close to it. You should, this something should leap out at you when, we, when this says, in which all who are, are in the tombs shall hear his voice. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, what's going to happen? Is there going to be a shout like the voice of an archangel? The voice, the rapture I'm talking about? Who's going to hear it? Yeah, we are. If we're dead, we'll hear it. I guess we'll hear it even if we're not dead. We won't be resurrected. We'll be translated. Resurrection for those who have died. There's going to be one generation. There's going to be a certain people who are not going to be resurrection, resurrected. They're going, their bodies are going to be transformed or translated in from this body of flesh into a body that is likened to Christ's resurrection body. It is a body, but it's not like this. It appears that it just has flesh and bones. 
No blood necessarily. doesn't look like it. Anyway, so that should leap out at you that there's those in the tomb shall hear his voice. Rapture, they're going to hear his voice. And shall come forth those who did good deeds. Now, deeds, if you look in your Bible, is in italics. It means it's not there in the original. Really, as far as the context of this verse, it doesn't matter that much one way or the other. But the word there for good is agathos. And it's, it's an adjective, and it means good of intrinsic value. And in context, it's talking about divine good. Now, see, I don't have to stop and teach the difference between human good and divine good. But if you're trying to explain this to someone, and you say, well, you, un, someone is trying to say there's only one judgment left, and it's going to be based on who did good and who did bad and all this. And you're saying, oh, wait a minute, this is talking about divine good. They said, divine good? Well, they, don't have a, they have no frame of reference for what divine good is. So you, already you have a problem, don't you? They want you to explain this in 20 words or less. And you can't do it. Because there's so much that you have to bring in. There are scriptures, there are principles and concepts all over the Bible that have to be overlaid with this verse in order to understand what it's saying. So there are going to be those who did good deeds or divine good. And they're going to be resurrected to a resurrection of life. Put it in your Bible right there. That's talking about the first resurrection. It's in that category of first resurrections. Now, if you're thinking, yeah, but what about Jesus Christ? He's already been resurrected. He's the first fruit. Yeah, he's the first fruits. But we're going to go to, resur- to Revelation, and we're sticking with the Scriptures and labeling it the way the Scriptures do. This is part of the first resurrection. So the good deeds are good of intrinsic value. Divine good will be resurrected. Uh, we'll have a resurrection of life, first resurrection. Then... Those who committed the evil deeds, actually it says committed. It could be does. It's proso here. Uh, And both of them are aorist. um, They're in the aorist tense. For those who, you see where it says, for those who did the good deeds, that's poieo, and it means to do something. And uh, proso, I think both of them are present active participles. And you have proso there for those who committed, or you could say who did, the evil deeds. Proso. That's a present active participle also. They just translated it committed here, but it just means to do something. Proso. So those who committed are those who did the evil deeds. Now the evil deeds... uh, Let's just drop down before I even get to the bracket. Evil deeds there. You see it up here? Evil deeds. The Greek word there is phalos. P-H-A-L, excuse me, P-H-A-U-L-O-S. It's an adjective and it's the accusative plural neuter of phalos. And it, mean, it can mean vile, evil, wicked, foul, uh, foul. Foul, yeah. Corrupt, good for nothing, 
depraved, worthless, mediocre, unimportant, being low-grade or morally substandard. Here's the main thing. This word does not mean sin. It means something that is worthless, something that does not count. Now, why is it so important that you recognize that this does not mean sins? If this word means sins, then we're in heap big trouble. Because if there's going to be any judgment where anyone is going to be judged for their sins, then Jesus Christ didn't cut the mustard on the cross, did he? He didn't, he didn't fulfill the plan. He didn't do his job because he didn't die for the sins of the whole world. Someone is going to be judged according to their sins, did he? If he did, then it means that either he was not really qualified and he is a liar when he said it is finished. It really wasn't finished. Or else we have a God, God the Father, who is unjust. For if he did pour out all the sins of mankind on Jesus Christ at the cross, then it would be unjust for him to then judge anyone else, punish anyone else for the sins that he has already punished Christ for. Anybody understands that. Even in our judicial system, they understand that. So this isn't talking about sins so evil deeds there it, it means worthless 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 acts we could call it human good see now you know the difference between divine good and human good there might be somebody listening to this sometime on the internet and they say well i don't know what is it what's the difference well just if you're on the internet go to the to the visuals and there is a Visual called human good versus divine good. So those who did the evil or worthless acts, human good, they're going to a resurrection of judgment, and this is the second resurrection at the great white throne. There is yet, we're going to see, three more resurrections, at least three more. We'll get to that, but it certainly isn't going to be just one more. It's going to be at least three. So many take this verse to support the idea that there is only one judgment in the future. There will be, future, there will be a future hour when all people who have died will hear Christ's voice and be resurrected, the ones who have done good deeds and the ones who have done evil or worthless deeds. That is a true statement. But can you see how if you have a worldview that is absent grace, is absent systematic theology, it's absent understanding the different judgments yet to occur and the different resurrections that the Bible plainly states, then you could go off on a tangent and think, well, the good ones are going to go to... Resurrection of life and the bad ones are going to go to the resurrection of death. And there's only one. Many believe that the good works of a person, that a, uh, the good works a person does will guarantee that he will be in the resurrection unto life. 
In fact, I said many, it's probably most people. Most people that you pass on the street, most people outside of your circle of friends think that you must do a certain number of good deeds in order to go to the resurrection of life. So that's what they think. Person, if you do enough works, good works, guarantee that you will be in the resurrection under life. Now, here's, the next two sentences, or I guess there's three, are very important. Anytime someone starts talking about works and salvation and they're trying to mix the two as if there's a, a correlation, you should instantly go here. And you should ask them this. What good can a person do that would merit this, that would merit a resurrection under life? How many good deeds are necessary? Five? Fifty? A hundred? Ten thousand? I mean, certainly if there is a number of good deeds that are required for a person to be in the first resurrection, the Bible would tell us, would it not? Would the Bible... Keep secret how many good works it takes in order to be in the first resurrection, the resurrection unto life. Would God keep that a secret? Wouldn't we need to know that to achieve that number? What kind of good deeds? What's the quality have to be? If I see some gum on the floor and I get it up so nobody else will step on it, does that count? How many pies and cakes do I have to take to my neighbor? How many times do I have to walk the old lady across the street? And how much does that count? You see the questions I'm asking? These are just coming off the top of my head and they can do the same for you. Anytime someone wants to mix works and salvation, you go there. You start quizzing them. And I think it's a good idea to act like you're really interested. Oh, really? You have to... There's going to be one resurrection and you've got to do good deeds. Well, how many do you have to do? Then wait for an answer? If they say, well... Uh, quite a few, quite a few. Okay, where do I find that in the Bible? Quite a few. Isn't that a little vague? My eternal destiny depends upon me doing the right number, and you're saying quite a few? Well, quite a few to me is ten. If I do ten good works from now to the time I die, am I in? And they're going, oh, well. What kind of works? What kind of works do I have? have to do? This is what you need to be doing to these people. Do not let them off. They get a free ride because Christians don't know how to talk to them. When Jehovah Witnesses come, people run hide under the bed. Mormons come up on a bicycle. They want to go out the back door. Why? We've got the good news. And they're going to come in and they're going to get to works because that's what they're all about is works. Challenge them. Where is it? How many? What kind? Here's a few verses for you. 
Romans 8, 8 says, and, these, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, you know what that means. The flesh there doesn't mean in this body. This is talking about your old sin nature. This is talking about the old man. Flesh, carnal. If you're carnal, if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you cannot please God. And I would assume that doing good works would please God because according to them, those who mis misunderstand this verse, say that this is what you've got to have in order to be in the first resurrection. Now, if that's the case, certainly good works would please God. And this says that if you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. Isaiah 64, 6. I hope you all all know this verse. This is a very good verse because everybody's working to try to be accepted by God. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like filthy, like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. That's what we can do. On your very best day, when you did more than anybody else, when you were actually kind-hearted, when you actually did something for the right motivation, and you weren't selfish, and you weren't trying to assuage your approbation lust, on your very best day, if you are do everything that you've done, and you're not under the filling of the Holy Spirit, all you've done is produced, in God's eyes, filthy rags. Totally unaccepted by God. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow if you're going to think that you're going to be in the first resurrection because you're doing all these good deeds, isn't it? Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 12. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's... There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Woo! Houston, we have a problem. Don't we? Huh? But we can't do good. And yet, it's based on good that we're going to be in the first resurrection. And we can't do it. Now we're at the place where we might can see a little light. We can't do the good, but God can. And he can do it through us. And that is divine good. And only believers can produce it. And only believers are going to be in the first resurrection. Here's another good one. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Remember, the Bible can't contradict itself. If there's not a righteous man on earth who constantly does good and who never sins, how can someone be qualified 
to be in the first resurrection because of his good deeds. We're, you're beginning to see there's a huge problem, right? We don't have it. The people who are trying to think that this is the only one resurrection left, there's only going to be one judgment, everything is going to be settled in, and if you've done enough good works, you're in. If you haven't, well, you're toast. Now, I'm going to ask you, I want all of you to write address of two verses that will put a, a wooden stake through the heart of the idea that you have to have these works in order to be in the first resurrection. Write them down somewhere. Don't write the whole verse. Just give me the address. I want two of them. And that's not asking too many. I want you to just write down the address. The address, I want two verses from you that will demonstrate that essentially what I'm saying, you can't get to heaven on your good works. That's what all this is about. That's what they think. And they go to this verse to try to substantiate it. Not only is this verse erroneous with the concept there's only one resurrection left, it's erroneous with the concept that anybody can do any kind of good and it's going to have anything to do with their eternal destiny as to where they're going to be. Two. Just the address is all I need. Mm -hmm. Okay, what the verses have to say, what we're looking at, we're looking for verses that will substantiate the fact that no one is going to get to heaven through works. I don't want to hear it. I mean, you're not going to give the verse, are you? Well, uh, I don't, not yet. <laughs> See, what's so important, this is why I'm teaching the young people. You may know theological concepts, and you may know for certain, and you should be, and you should be dogmatic. That no one is going to be in the first resurrection under life because of the good deeds he did. But there are those who are going to be standing there and said, that's what the verse says. Now, you need to be able to go into the Bible and go to at least two verses that next knocks that idea completely out of the park. It's out. Two verses. Y'all look like the kids now, they You had enough time? Would you like to hear mine? How about Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, as the gift of God. What? Not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, <laughs> if it's by grace through faith, and it's not of works then how are these good works going to get you in the first resurrection? Somebody has a big problem with that one, don't they? You want to hear my second one? I'm just going to ask you first. How many of you have Romans 4 or 5 down? All right, good, good. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his what? Faith is credited as righteousness. See, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to be righteous enough 
to be in the first resurrection, which was is the resurrection to life. And there's only one way to do it. It's, again, what do we hear? Not of works, lest any man should boast. I mean, in that one, to the one who does not work. Well, that's hard, isn't it? These people are thinking, well, you've got to work in order to get to heaven. And this says, to the one who does not work. Wow. Okay, I've got more, but I'll give you all a chance. Michael, you got one? Okay. Galatians 2.16 is wonderful. It says it three times in that verse. Do you know it? <laughs> Go ahead and read it. One. Two. Three. Three times he says it. Not by the works of the law. No man is justified by the works of the law. Three times. Right. That's what it is. And all the, I'm trying to show you that in this verse, the main thing that got me going on this was we need to be able to defend those who say there's only going to be one judgment in the future and everything is going to be settled. And it's all going to be based on your good versus your bad. And it actually are evil. Some translations say bad, some say evil. And the word phalos means worthless. It's not talking about sins. It's talking about things that they do that they think the good deeds, the very good deeds that they think that's going to get them into heaven, that's going to open heaven's door, doors, are worthless. In fact, it's going to be the very thing they are indicted for at the great white throne. How confused, how duped are they? Okay, anybody else got any more? Any others? That's, that, we got it. I think I have it on here. Let's see. Yeah, let me show it to you. I'll show you up here. Titus 3, 5. There it is. He saved us not on the basis of the righteous... Uh, base, he saved us not on the basis of deeds. This I, I know the King James Version. He saved us not on by the uh, righteous, our righteous acts, but according to His mercy, by the uh, washing and renewal of the uh, Spirit, the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The key part is... Not, uh, by, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. And I think the King James says, all of our righteousnesses, I believe. But according to His mercy. See, that's what, that's what they're missing. Anybody that goes to this verse and tries to allege that there's going to be a future resurrection and everybody's going to be judged whether they're good or bad, what they've done and so forth, they don't know mercy. They don't know grace. They're trying to achieve it on their own Works. Anybody else got another one? Okay. Yes. Our faith. Here's another one. Here's another good one to write down. This one has a double whammy on it. It's First John chapter five, verse thirteen. Not only does it say that it doesn't have anything to do with works, the one qualification to know if you have eternal life or not is faith, is believing. And it says that you can know that you have it. These things are written to those who have believed on the name of the Son of God so that they may know that they have eternal life. 
That's enough. I mean, there are many, many, many more, but at least have two in your arsenal. If you want to be ahead of the young people's class, you have to know at least two, and John 3.16 does not count. No. I mean, it counts, but not for this. It counts a lot. But with regards to knowing these verses, every time I have the first thing I do, you can ask any of the young people, when we, when we, st- we, we sing for about 15 minutes, and then I said, okay, let's have it. If Paula was the first child, I said, okay, Paula, stand up, let's hear it. And they, got, they have to give me uh, two salvation verses. And they have to pop them right out. And when I first started doing it, everyone wanted to give me John 3.16. I said, no, I'm not going to have it. Yeah, now 3.18, John 3.36, I will accept. I do accept those. Okay, uh, now I'm going to get back to our notes here. Well, I had them up there. Okay, uh, understanding the good of those who will be in the first resurrection. So we're, we're dealing with that good with regards to the, to the part there. A, only believers can produce divine good which is acceptable to God. He accepts it because he is the one producing it through us. However, those who did good deeds, that should be, are not the, uh, uh, that's not the reason uh, they are in the first resurrection. It is a way of classifying those who believe the gospel. Do you understand that? Let me do it, let me run it by you again. Only believers can, de- can produce divine good. Why is that? Because only the believers have the ability to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They're already indwelt, and only they have the filling of the Holy Spirit, so they're the only ones that can produce divine good. He accepts that divine good, that is, uh, because he is the one that produces it through us. However, those who did the good deeds is not the reason they are in the first resurrection. In other words, they're not in the first resurrection because of the good deed. That's what I'm trying to say. It's just a way of classifying those who have believed the gospel. And that agathos, intrinsic good there, is a way of showing divine good. You got that? So it, even those who are producing the divine good, they're not going to uh, be in the first resurrection because of the of the good that they did. This is just a way of classifying them as believers. B. Now this is a quote from Bibliotheca Sacra, uh, volume 136. And this was uh, by Zane Hodges, by the way. And he says, quote, In the perspective of God and from the vantage point of eternity, those who participate in the resurrection of life can be identified without equivocation or qualification as those who have done good. There no longer remains anything. His view of them, however, that could invite his judgment. In other words, what what Zane is saying there is it's not that they have done so many good works or that God was even able to do the good works through them. He said it's more of a positional sense. In other words, when God sees us, he sees us as the ones who who are the good. 
Even though we can't do anything good, Jesus, I mean, uh, God the Father sees us through Jesus Christ. He sees us through the sacrifice that Christ has done for us, which wiped away all of our sins. So there is, it's impossible for us to come under judgment. That is condemnation. Where's the verse? Don't say it, but just think of it. Where's the verse that would guarantee that we will not come under condemnation? You've heard me say it a hundred times. Romans, Romans 8, 1. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are what? In Christ. How important is being in Christ? It's everything. So I'm giving you two perspectives there with regards to the good. One is that it's not the good that people do that are going to put them in the first resurrection, which is the resurrection to life. All that is is classifying them as believers. That's the ones that's going to be in the first resurrection. The second one is um, they're going to be identified, he says, without qualification as those who have done good because there's no longer anything against them. God can't hold anything against them, so he sees them, or I should say us, as the one who do good or are good, you see? Even though we are, we can't produce anything good. All we can come up with is sin, lust, you name it, everything that's vile and evil and selfish and sinful, that's what we do. But God sees us as those who do the good because the Bible promises we cannot be judged. We have the, how can we be judged when we have the righteousness of God? It would be like God judging himself. C. This is another uh, quote from that same article. The sharpest contrast to the lost who have done the evil things, these recipients, God's saving grace and power, stand together in the resurrection of life under one common designation as those who have done good. So it's contrast to those who did the evil. The one who do, does the good speaks of God's saving grace and his power and we all stand together in the resurrection of life under one common designation. We are all the ones who do good. And see, it th don't think of it as doing good. It means it's a classification. We are the ones that cannot be judged. We are the ones that cannot be condemned. We are the ones that are spotless before God because we, we have His own righteousness. It is a classification. D. I got this from the Believer's Bible Commentary. It says, A person is not saved by doing good, but he does good because he has been saved. Good works are not the root of salvation, but rather the fruit. They are not the cause, but the effect. Is that a true statement? Yes. However, it can be a slippery it can be distorted very easily. As soon as you have someone come in from the Reformed Theology group, and they say, oh, yes, that, that's true, see. And if you don't have the fruit, you're not going to make it. Because what they're essentially saying is if you are really and truly born again, you will provide fruit. You will produce fruit. How can you handle that? Huh? The same way you handle the works. 
Okay, I'll buy that. How much fruit? Fruit is works. And you get right back to the same thing. How much fruit do I have to produce until I'm qualified to be in the first resurrection? Is it 10 pounds of fruit? Is it two tons of fruit? Is it a tanker load of bananas? What is it? And you see, they can't come up with it because it's a works-oriented idea. What kind of fruit? Can just an apple or orange, is that all right? Does it have to be a kiwi? Does it have to be a mango? Is a kumquat a fruit? A kumquat. Do I have to produce kumquat? Now, come on. I don't even know what a kumquat is. I don't, even, I don't think I've ever seen one. If a kumquat came up here and jumped on my pulpit, I would say, I don't know what you are. Sorry. And if I have to produce it, I'm in bad shape. Do you see how to handle these folks? Now, that's a true statement. But you hadn't lived until someone comes along and says, well, you heard of so-and-so, what they did. And you said, yeah, that's pretty bad, all right. And they said, well, and I thought he was a believer. You said, well, what do you mean? Well, look what he did. You shall know them by their fruit. What did I teach you about that? Yeah, it's for false teacher. It, that false, that uh, that uh, fruit, you shall know them by their fruit, never is directed towards believers. It's only directed towards false teachers. And the fruit is what they say. The fruit is the false teaching that they're putting out. So this is a true statement. They are not the cause but the effect. They should be. Are there believers out there that aren't producing fruit? Well, what do you say? Do you say they weren't ever really saved to begin with because they're not, they had an a easy believism? Or did they have their salvation but they didn't produce enough fruit and they lost it? Oh, by the way, what is the quota anyway? That's something else. If I've got to produce fruit, what is my, do I have to have so much fruit a month? How many, can I, can I have a big load of fruit and, and, and I can coast for a while? Or do I have to have so many fruit every month? Why aren't we asking these kind of questions? I've got to persevere producing fruit until I die. Even though it hadn't rained in three years. And we run out of fertilizer. And the worms ate up all the seed. You get the point. <laughs> well, that's, that's the other thing. Uh, if that's the case, if we have to produce so much fruit and we have to meet our quota until we're dead, how can we have that confidence that 1 John 5.13 gives us? We're supposed to know that we have eternal life. And what is it based on? Believing, 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 believing. That's all it is throughout the whole thing. And that's what the unbelievers and Satan hate. They hate grace. They love to work for their own salvation. And no one is going to be in the first resurrection until they get over the fact that they're 
best day and their best works is what Paul said is miaino. It's crapola. You can't even start to accept grace till you get past that idea. And that's why religious people are so hard to witness to because they are so proud of their crapola. I've got a mountain of it. Look at that. Woo! Look at this, John 5, 24. This is just the one we, we went through already, but look at it. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes, you see that? We can't get away from it. We heard it, and then we believe it, and believes him who sent me. What do they have? Eternal life. That's not like John 3, 36, doesn't it? Has eternal, and does not come into judgment. It's impossible for believers to be judged at the great white throne and, and have passed out of death into life. Where's the works in that scripture? You see any works? You see any fruit? And that's talking about those are going to be in the first resurrection. Silly me, when I was putting this together, I thought, now, I don't know if this is going to last the whole time or not. We might have to be going back to Second Thessalonians to pick up where we were last Thursday. I'm not even a third of the way through yet. There are so many more things to bring out in this Scripture. But it's important that we are able to rightly divide the word of truth and not get all discombobulated when someone comes around and we want to use this verse as an idea, and substantiation, that there's only one resurrection, there's only one judgment left. It's going to happen at the end of time. Everything is going to be taken care of. No such thing as the judgment seat of Christ. No such thing as the great white throne. No such thing as a resurrection at the rapture, a resur resur resurrection at the second advent. No such thing as uh, the resurrection of the dead being separate times. They're all lumped together in one deal. This is how they think. And they will go to this verse and they will... Divorce it from everything else in the Bible and they'll go from the English and they'll want you to buy it. And you have the great opportunity to hold their feet to the fire because what they're saying is I believe that I can be in the first resurrection of life because of what I do. And you cannot let that one pass. There is nothing more important than you being able to straighten that out. And you don't straighten it by getting on your soapbox, your, your little pe preacher's pulpit. You engage them and start asking them questions and make them defend that statement and that idea. And they cannot do it biblically. I guarantee you they cannot. And if you go to your two verses and you ask them, how can this be if these verses are true? And you might... Help them to do something that they may have never done before. And that's really think about what they believe. And if you can do that, the Holy Spirit will do the rest. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can focus our attention upon these verses. Your word is mighty and it is absolute truth. However, it is distorted in a thousand different ways. And we want to be good and faithful servants that are able to rightly divide the word. Engage these unbelievers. They're not our enemies. 
They are in darkness and they bought the light. We pray that you will help us to give them the light by engaging them in questions and show them through what they, what their own words, how it doesn't make sense and it doesn't jive with Scripture. We pray that we will not be afraid, but boldly speak out about the fantastic grace that you extend to all mankind. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.